0: My privilege to stand before you this morning and, and open up God's Word. We are in the book of Philippians, so if you would turn there. Well, I actually don't turn there quite yet. I'm going to read a passage here as we begin way back in Genesis. So if you can turn Genesis 3, you can follow along, then we'll get into to Philippians. And, and I hope this will all make sense, but Genesis chapter 3, a, a passage that is very familiar to us if you spend any time in the church, because this really sets up the plight in which we find ourselves before Christ came. Just a few verses in Genesis chapter 3, hopefully you will see the connection of Adam to our passage in Philippians 2. Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafted than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made, he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden?' She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. When Augustine was asked to list the central principles for Christian faith, he said, the first one is humility the second one is humility, and the third one is humility. This morning we're going to see this is the central passage in the New Testament about humility. Humility is the, the choice to forgo your status, to give of your resources, or use your influence for the good of others before yourself. More simply, you could say the, the humble person is marked by a willingness to hold power in service of others. Humility is is willing. It's a, it's a choice. Otherwise, it's humiliation when it's forced upon. So what does humility have to do with Genesis chapter 3? In Genesis 3, we see the sin of Adam that plunged our entire human race into sin. He, he is the first Adam, as Genesis says, as the Scriptures will will unfold for us, and we will need a second Adam to come and redeem us. The perfect offspring that would come from Eve. Adam and Eve desired, as we've just read, to be, to be like God. They wanted status. They wanted privilege and prestige. They, they desired to know good from evil, but they didn't desire to empty themselves for others or to set, set aside their rights or to obey God or to submit him to Him by bowing the knee for well, the pride of Adam and Eve sent all of us away from God. And so we needed a rescuer to come bring us back. We needed a new Adam to bring us home and to make us heavenly citizens. So here is the main idea of the passage this morning. We're in you can flip now to Philippians chapter 2, but here's the main idea. If you get anything in the sermon this morning, this is this is the point here I want you to get. Heavenly citizens share the mindset of Christ a purposeful, sacrificial, selfless service for the eternal well-being of others. Heavenly citizens share the mindset of Christ, a purposeful, sacrificial, selfless service for the eternal well-being of others. And here is the outline. It should be on the screen there, the four points as we walk through the passage this morning in Philippians chapter 2, emptying ourselves for others, setting aside our rights, obeying God when it hurts, and worshiping God forever. So, I'm going to read the passage here, but we're going to back up in the beginning of chapter 2 and read the full context, so we're going to look at Philippians 2, 1 through 11 briefly, but we'll spend the majority of our time in, in verses 5 through 11. But Philippians chapter 2, look at verse 1. So, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father, amen? First we will see emptying ourselves for others an example of what Christ has done. As we began the chapter, Paul is switching gears from chapter 1 about talking about his state of affairs when he's in prison to the church there in Philippi, and to now he's equipping the saints that, that make up this church family in, in, in Philippi. And he gives us the most important character trait for a heavenly citizen, that's humility. Paul appeals to the church to complete his joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being literally single-souled thinking the same way together and of one mind. And what Paul is saying is that if you're a genuine citizen of heaven, then you should share this attitude with other citizens of heaven. And as members of church, you should have the same mind, the same single soul direction in life as other heavenly citizens that you live among and serve with. And Paul here wants, this, wants them to work on their minds, their thinking, the way they see things, their values, their attitudes, their ambitions, their, their goals for life. Because when we understand how we are to think, it will affect what we do and how we live. And we can seek then to redirect it to match that of Christ, who is the chief citizen of heaven, Jesus, right? That's what he says here in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So what is the first mindset that we will see here? We should empty ourselves for others again to verse 5, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus who although was in the form of God did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Paul here is still addressing church members and he's asking them to act together in imitation of Christ's humility as individuals a part of a community. So it's still the church that he's writing towards. And he writes at the beginning of verse 5, have this mind among yourselves. It's literally translated, think this thing or think this way among you as the church. As a church family, think this way. And later in chapter 4, we'll get to that, Lord willing, in a few weeks, Paul will write concerning uh, of a faction, of a split that's happened. And in chapter 4, verse 2, he says, I entreat Judea and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. More literally translated, he's saying, I asked Judea and Syntyche to think the same thing in the Lord. So it seems to me as I study this passage and read this book that the motive behind this charge that we get here in chapter 2 is the issue that he's going to come address in chapter 4. It all makes sense. He's setting it up now for them to understand how they're to live as the church because there was disunity even in the church in Philippi, which really, Philippi is that, that one church that seemed to do everything right. There's, there's disunity. And Paul embraces it and directs their attention to it. And it's crazy to think that there's disunity in the church, right? It's just unheard of that their people wouldn't get along, that two ladies don't get along in the church. This is alarming to me. Like, surely he's overblowing a situation, Right? Well, friends, if you've been in church at any point, you'd realize, no, that's pretty normal, actually. There were sinners then, and there are sinners now. We still live among those. And when you live with other sinners, it won't always be peaceful. We will have conflict. And and when we have conflict in our life, we go to this book, because this is what helps us to deal with that conflict. God is not honored when we ignore conflict or just try to sweep it under the rug. That's not how we're built. That's not how God deals with it. There will always be conflict in the church. We will never be a conflict-free church because we're a church filled with sinners who continue to sin. And so we, as a church, and Paul's writing to this church, we have to learn how to resolve conflict and what was, what was Paul's mindset? What was his choice? His, his teaching was to teach on Jesus, to, to, to inform the believers who are already saved about what Christ has done in saving them. That's the antidote. That's the answer. That's the medicine to the conflict that they see in the church and the conflict that we see in this world, looking to Jesus Christ and following His example. So, friends, if you right now, in your life, in the midst of conflict, you need these verses here in, in Philippians chapter 2. Humility is the lubricant for conflicts. It helps us deal with conflicts. And what he will say here is Jesus the Messiah was willing to give up the privileges of lordship in order to suffer in our place in the cross. He, th- he, he was thinking of others. So, we, we too must focus On the interest of others and direct our attentions to the others for the unity of the church. Friends, you are either helping build unity in the church or helping destroy unity in the church. There really is no middle ground, there's not middle choice there. It's how you live and interact with others. You're either breaking apart unity, how you talk, what you talk about, how you act, and how you react or you're building unity together as a church. And Paul's encouragement is to build unity in this body by focusing on Jesus Christ and to make him the topic and the the understanding of how we're to live and to think in this world. No matter how bad I want it to be true, unity for the church isn't the result of good preaching on unity. I could be the best preacher in the world, but that's not how it's going to happen. Unity in the church is the result of people adoring and emulating Jesus Christ. The more we behold His glory and imitate His character, the more we will be unified as a body of Christ. So, if we fall into the trap of disunity, it's probably because we have forgotten to look at Jesus Christ, and we're focused on them or ourselves instead of the one that, that bore that iniquity. So, you, it means you can't beat yourself into being unified. You can't just will yourself into doing that. You must behold yourself into unity, beholding Jesus Christ adoring Him, loving Him, focusing on Him. And that's just the church family, but friends, this applies to your home. If you're in the midst of conflict in your home, is it because you've focused so much on, on the problem and forgotten Jesus Christ? Friends, the Sunday school answer is right. It's, it's Jesus. That's where our focus needs to be. And this passage is simply a beautiful picture of our Savior, who emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Let's dive in a little bit there. Jesus emptying himself involved a change in his role and status rather than his essential nature or his attributes. Paul's point here is that Jesus was God, and yet he did not consider his position something to be exploited for his own advantage. Jesus willingly gave up his position and came as a servant to others. It's not of what Jesus emptied himself, but into what did Jesus empty himself. Paul's, Paul's concerned not with what Jesus emptied himself out of, but but what, what he emptied himself into. He manifested the form of God through the form of a slave, and this all might seem technical, but I want us to understand that Jesus used the wealth and power and privilege and prestige of his position not for his own self-advancement, but to take on the form of a slave in order to serve others. That's what humility is. It's not thinking of yourself less. It's, It's an action. Humility is the choice to forgo your status to give of your resources or to use your influence for the good of others before yourself. Or simply, you could say that that the humble person is marked by a willingness to hold power in service of others. Humility, as I said, is is, is a willing choice. Otherwise, if it's not, it's, it's humiliation. But Christ chose this. Christ willingly emptied Himself to save another. Brian Chapel illustrates this in his book on preaching of Jesus emptying himself, and he shares a story from an African missionary. In this part of Africa that he shares, the chief is the strongest man in the village. Whoever the strongest man is, he's the chief, and the chief would have to wear this large headdress and ceremonial robe. One day, they said, in, in the village, someone, a man was carrying water in, out of the shaft of a deep well and fell and broke his leg and fell down to the bottom of this well, helpless. But for someone to climb down the well would be hard enough. They would have to then carry this injured man up the well. So the chief was summoned as the strongest man in the village. And he, he, he knew what he needed to do. And so he laid aside his headdress, took off his robe, and climbed down in this well and put the man on his back to climb up the well. He did what no other man could do. That's what Jesus did for us when he came to rescue us. Now, did the chief cease being the chief when He went down into the well? No. Did Jesus cease being God when He came to rescue us? The Scripture is clear. No. He was still God. But He laid aside His power and privilege to serve others. He emptied Himself of of a prestige and position that He had to serve others. And so what happens if the two ladies later in Philippians 4 empty up themselves and, and lay aside their rights to serve one another? What happens when, 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 when we do that in the church? There's usually a, a gospel response. Now you understand it's not that we can save ourselves by being like Jesus because that would be a new gospel. It's not, it's not doing works to, to gain this but we show that we're changed and in Him by giving of ourselves, by emptying ourselves to serve others. Conflict is coming, friends, if it isn't already here in your home or in your life. And the first step is to look to Jesus Christ, to meditate on Him. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Paul's not done with this argument because emptying himself is not the the only part of what Christ did for us. Second, he also laid aside his rights. So that's number two, setting aside our rights. Jesus, who though was in the form of God, did not account equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Jesus was in the form of God. Now, is this like a God wannabe? No, not at all. The Greek word here for form deals with the essential character or nature of something, its, its rank or status or station in existence. And Paul is saying that the pre-incarnate Jesus existed as God. This verse teaches us of the pre-existence of Jesus as the second member of the Trinity. And when we speak of pre-existence, we mean His eternal existence prior to His incarnation being born as a baby. So make a mistake, Christ is God. He is equal to God, co-eternal, the same essence. There was never a time when Jesus didn't exist. He had no point of origin. He is creator. He wasn't created. No matter what other cults may say or false religions, Jesus has always existed. He is God. And today, as Christians, we still confess the historic Nicene Creed. Maybe we should do that more here as a church family. We believe in the one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, the very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. And with each passing generation, friends, we need to teach this to our children and to our children's children so they understand who Jesus Christ is. But Paul isn't done. He says, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Even though Jesus shared the same rights and honors and privileges of God, he didn't selfishly protect his rights or position or his privilege, but he, he gave them up for us. Do you see the irony here? People seek their fulfillment in things that they acquire or earn, things that they grasp onto. That's why Genesis 3 was right at the beginning. What did Adam and Eve seek to do? They wanted to grasp. They wanted to take hold of that to be like God. And Jesus already shared the glory and position and privilege of God, and so what does He do? He lays it aside, He says. He emptied Himself of the rights He possessed and the prerogatives of deity to become a man, to live under our limits and rules, and the gospel reminds us that Jesus Christ was cosmically downsized to come and live and die for us. The infinite became infant. He was really something, but he made himself nothing. He already possessed something that he himself determined not to hold on to. And we witness here a willing relinquishment of his own divine prerogatives. Jesus didn't grasp onto it, but he set it aside. What are we grasping onto? Are you grasping on tight to your rights? It doesn't take much time to realize that holding on to pride gets in the way of humility for our life, right? Jesus set aside his rights. And I'm stepping into something dangerous here. Because when we talk about rights, especially to an American audience, people might well up with some defensiveness, right? We have the right to gather. We have the right to vote. We have the right to free speech. We have inalienable rights, if I read the Declaration of Independence correctly. And don't forget that thing called the Bill of Rights. We know rights here. So what does it mean to lay aside your rights? It's not that rights are bad, but what if God is calling you to give them up in service for Him and for the furtherance of the gospel? Can you do that? Are you even willing to do that? Was there any more significant time in our current existence as humans that tested our ability to set aside our rights in the last few years? How did you do? only you can answer that question. I dare not answer for you or for anyone else. Were you able at all to lay aside your rights for the good of others? Let's not think of the last three years. Let's just think of this week. Were you able to lay aside your rights this week for the good of others? Was that thought even in your head? Or were you… Pushed to the brink always, so that you thought you had to do was just fight for your rights. I have to keep my rights. It's not that rights don't matter. Don't don't hear me say that. They most certainly do. When one person violates the rights of another, that's injustice, that's oppression. And and while we want to be known as defenders of legitimate rights of others, we're not supposed to be known by only. protecting and fighting for our ambition to protect our own rights. To follow Jesus Christ means to see allegiance to Him as more significant than any other right that we hold to in this life. To be faithful to Jesus, we might even have to give up our rights, even the right to our own life, for the sake of the gospel. Are you ready to follow Jesus this way? Are you ready to sacrifice your rights so someone else can hear the gospel? You know, every day the faithfulness of our brothers and sisters in persecuted nations around the world step out of their homes on Sundays at some predetermined time, and they willingly let go of their right to life and freedom so that they can simply gather as the church. They live by grace, not by rights. Can we think that way? Or do we have it backwards? Do we live by rights and we'll take grace if we get it? I'm afraid of the What would happen in the Christian church in America if persecution would actually come? What would happen in the pulpits? Would preachers be able to preach God's Word without fear of losing their life, willingly laying aside their rights for the sake of the congregations they lead so that they could preach, so that they could point people to Jesus? Or would they grasp tight into their rights and make that the message? Are we more like the first Adam who wanted to grasp hold, or are we like the second Adam who released the grip? I mean, who had greater rights than Jesus Christ? He had equality with God. Jesus had the right to be worshiped by every living thing that He created. He had the rights to full authority and full power over everything. And what do we read that Jesus does here? He lays aside those rights. Why? Why would Jesus, God in the flesh, do such a shocking thing? To reverse the curse set in motion by Adam Who fought for his rights? Jesus gave up his rights to rescue us from eternal hell. To rescue us who was separated by God forever. Friends, Jesus Christ is the true and better Adam, he is worthy of our worship. And, friends, today, to be a Christian, means to recognize that the only thing we have a perfect right to is the wrath of God. And that's not a right that we want to fight for. But you have that right. I have that right. A.W. Tozer, writing about Christian rights, says this, Few sites are more depressing than that of a professed Christian defending his supposed rights and bitterly resisting any attempt to violate them. Such a Christian has never accepted the way of the cross. The sweet graces of meekness and humility are unknown to him. He grows every day harder and more bitter as he defends his reputation, his rights, his ministry against his imagined foes." Friend, is this you? Are you known by your family and friends as a warrior for your rights? more than a worshiper of God? Are you willing to defend your rights more than serving Christ in the church?" Christ refused to hold on to His divine rights and prerogative. He veiled His deity, but He did not void His deity. He added lowly humanity, but He didn't surrender deity. And then the wedding of these two natures, do you realize, was permanent. I mean, think about this, friends. Jesus will remain fully God and fully man forever. Let that bake your noodle, forever. So him emptying himself and setting aside his rights to come low had eternal consequences for himself and for us, willing to give up himself for the sake of others. He could have clutched to his rights, his blessings, his benefits as king of the universe, but he lived open-handedly, showing us what benevolent generosity and service should look like for the Christian. Christ-like humility means not standing upon our so-called rights, but being willing to give them up for the sake of others, for the furtherance of the gospel, so that others can hear what it means to be saved. So, can we live this way? Do we have a hard time living open-handedly? Do we have a hard time letting go of our rights? Usually this is seen most in in the mundane things. Maybe your mind's going to the big stuff, right, right away of of, of what it looks like here in America, but usually it's seen in the mundane, right? I'll just tell you, I'll I'll confess, one of my rites on Sunday afternoons is a nap with children playing quietly. (laughs) But I need to learn to give up that right. There's nothing written there for Jeff to have that but oh boy, I sure feel like I have to have that. Some students in school believe they have the right to get good grades whether they work hard or not. I I deserve this. I know I failed that exam, but I deserve to have a retake. It's not written anywhere. Grandparents, you know, deserve, I'm going to pick on everyone. Grandparents deserve to have the right to spoil their grandchildren. See, the mundane, the small things in life is when it surfaces usually. Can we lay aside our rights to serve others and not just ourselves? Are we able to put on humility when we're challenged, when it's hard? Perhaps this area should move up in our prayer list about ourselves and our church. See, the first Adam in Genesis three fought for his rights. He didn't. He didn't want to release the grip of what he wanted. And he, he wanted to be like God. And where did that lead us? It plunged us into the depths of hell, separated from God. But Christ, the second Adam, came and reversed this. He emptied himself and laid aside his rights. And third, as we obey God when it hurts, look at verse 8. In being found in human form, he humbled himself. I'm going to pause just there for a moment. As I thought through this, meditate on this week, I can't help but see the most significant way that Jesus humbled himself in human form is by waiting. By waiting. When did Jesus' ministry start? At the age of 30. 30 years He waited. And mostly, from what we read, it was silent. There was some parts in the Gospels we read, but yeah, most people that I come in contact to, I shouldn't say most, there's a number of people who, who desire to be in ministry, sit under preaching and teaching for a year or two, and they're just ready to tackle the world. Some seminary students think two years is just terribly long before they can get out and go into ministry, and here we see Christ waiting Thirty years pass before he launches his preaching career, and when he begins, you see his humility. His life is displayed in this way of a humble recognition, and he prefers, Christ prefers to associate himself with lowly men, fishermen, and to train them for ministry. He goes against the entire structure of how the world would work. And in this, Jesus is displaying for us perfect humility. He humbled himself. And Paul continues, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus' main way of humbling himself was by obedience. He had no special program or mantra that he repeated. He just obeyed the Father. Obedience to God is the best way to show humility, friends. Laying yourself at the feet of Jesus, making your will His will for whatever He desires. Humbled here involves a diminishing of oneself for the sake of others. Jesus displays for us humility. He is the model for us on how to live, the model for true humility for the church. It is the way in which we're to follow, to give of ourselves for others. And this whole volume, again, this whole episode speaks about how Christ is the new Adam to rectify the failure of the first Adam in the garden. Jesus, not counting equality with God a thing to be grasped, reminds us again of, of, of Adam's failure. Adam grasped for equality with God as the serpent tempted him, right? But Jesus emptying himself, pouring himself out as a servant, as, as was read by Pastor Cress earlier in Isaiah chapter 53. But Adam refused to obey, God commanded and Adam disobeyed. Adam wanted to be like God. So Jesus comes to undo the disobedience of Adam and then to experience the judgment of God, which Adam brought on the human race. If you remember back in Isaiah 53, that was read, it uses the language of sin. Transgression means deliberately wandering from God. Iniquity means falling short of a goal, going astray. Well, that kind of explanatory, right? Walking, it's wandering away from God. Then God uses the language of punishment. That is the passage to deal with our sin. Jesus was wounded, and He was crushed, and and the chastisement was upon Him. And then talks about substitution. It was for our transgression, our iniquities, our disobedience. And his chastisement on the cross brought us peace and we're healed. The iniquity of us all has been laid on Jesus Christ. He was obedient in all of it. Obedient not, not only till he came to die, but obedient in the last dreaded act of crucifixion. Jesus' obedient life embraced the hour of his departure and he followed through in obedience to the very end. And crucifixion was the very worst way of death. Crucifixion was a violent death. Jesus didn't fall asleep into death like most do. He didn't gently pass from this life. Jesus died at the hands of murderous men. It was a painful death to watch, a gruesome display. The parts of the body where, where nerves are most numerous is where they pierced Him with iron nails. He obeyed. See, at the cross, Jesus stood in our place to absorb all the wrath of God towards our sin. Jesus receives God's judgment for us. Jesus obeyed the Father for our sake. He willingly humbled Himself to be obedient for our sake and to be the perfect justice of God. And how could Jesus do this? Because He was fully man, and therefore He was able to stand in our place as the perfect human being. But Jesus was also fully God, and therefore as the one who had been sinned against, He was able to carry His own pure and just judgment for our sin. See, when Paul speaks of Jesus' humility as culminating in his crucifixion, this would have been more striking to the church in Philippi at this time. Jesus divests himself of the privileges of deity and becomes human, and he willingly associated himself with the lowliest and most humiliating form of a torturous death in order that his people would benefit. I'm sorry, I need to cough for a second. (coughs) I'm sorry for that. I've had a marathon cold. It's going for a long time. When we read the Gospels, Jesus died a, a death of a criminal. He was not a hero in the battlefield. And when he was hung on the cross, he had thieves killed on each side of him. And his adversaries mocked him. No one would voluntarily head to a death like Jesus did. A death on the cross, but Christ did. Some ancient texts prove this point of how people felt about the cross. In opposition to it, a governor who had crucified Roman citizens, Cicero said, to bind a Roman citizen is a crime. To flog him is abomination. To slay him is almost an act of murder to crucify Him is what? There is no fitting word that can possibly describe so horrible a deed. I know we have a cross that's behind me, and I think sometimes in our world, in our culture, we just think of it as just some symbol there with no significance. We can pass by it very easily. We can wear it on, on a necklace or even a tattoo and, and just think that it's just a cross. Friends, this was the most horrific way to die, the most gruesome thing to see. And Christ willingly did this for us in obedience to the Father for our sake. God speaks of the atrocities of the cross in the book of Deuteronomy. It says, a hanged man is cursed by God. Christ became a curse for us. He himself bore our sins in his body on that tree that we may die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed, 1 Peter 2 says. Christ displayed for us what true humility is. And that example is that we're called to follow in our lives. See, friends, heavenly citizens share the mindset of Christ, a purposeful, sacrificial, selfless service for the eternal well-being of others. And Paul's desire for this church, for our church, is that we give ourselves, give ourselves selflessly for the sake of others, just as Jesus Christ did. That is the mindset of a heavenly citizen. (laughs) But the mindset is not just to have a happy church. It's for the eternal well-being of others. We're not asked to engage in selfless acts with no ultimate aim. The goal of our selfless service is to be towards the eternal salvation of God's people and then the worship that will follow. And that leads me to my last point. Look at verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Just pause for a moment and realize that, that Jesus Christ didn't crown himself. God the Father crowned him. The phrase highly exalted means to, to super elevate, to crown as the chief and supreme. Jesus didn't elevate himself to the throne of majesty, but his Father lifted him there and placed him on the throne. No one is exalted like Jesus is. He is in a class all by himself, and no man, no human has properly exalted Christ either. No, No, as men and women, we cursed him and whipped him and nailed him to a tree, but we didn't exalt him. We jeered him and disavowed him. Man didn't exalt Christ. God the Father did. Man dishonored him, but God has highly exalted him and we read that God gave him the name that is above every name. A person's name can convey reputation and is to be valued more than riches, as Proverbs says. Conversely, the end of someone's name is the termination of his or her remembrance. And we might think the name of Jesus that is given, that's the name. But really, Paul, I think, is talking about the title that God has given Jesus Christ. And the title is Lord, of which every tongue will confess, he says. He is Lord, and to be called Lord would carry even deeper meaning to the people of Philippi. To hear that someone other than Caesar is Lord would be shocking to this church, but Jesus is Lord. He is the supreme emperor of the entire universe, infinitely above any puny Caesar or president we ever ever have. He is Lord. And then Paul says, soon, at the very name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Just imagine with me. Picture his transcendent glory. All the majesty this world could conjure is swallowed up in a second with his magnificence. He is brighter than the sun and more terrible than a billion-man army. And every single created human will bow the knee to him one day. All creation will bow before him. This doesn't mean that all creation will be saved. It does mean, though, that Jesus will command all creation and all will submit to his lordship, even begrudgingly. This is the fulfillment of Yahweh's oath in Isaiah chapter 45. By myself I have have sworn, for my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Some will confess Him as Lord with great joy and with humility and praise. Others will confess Him as Lord with despair and anguish. And we know the shame and terror the enemies of God will have as they bow before Him and confess that Jesus is the rightful Lord over all creation. And with delight as Jesus' friends, we will humbly adore Him and we will own Him as our Lord and our Savior but there will be a universal recognition of Jesus Christ as Lord over all. You can count on that. And we long for everyone to recognize this. It's part of the reason why we gather every week here. Part of the reason why we exist as a church is that others would recognize Jesus as Lord and would bow the knee and confess with us That He's come to save us. And for most of us seated this morning, this brings joy. And yet for others that might be here, it brings serious doubt, maybe even some cynicism. You can't ever see yourself bowing to God and in worship. But you need to hear me, friends. The day is coming and we are closer today than we were yesterday. You will either bow willingly to Jesus or forcefully. You will either confess Him as Lord over your life when there's still time to live or confess Him as Lord when the clock has stopped. And friends, God in His gracious providence in your life woke you up this morning and brought the motivation to come and gather with His church, to sit under the Word in song and in prayers and preached so that you would respond to Him in faith. God did that. And if you haven't bowed the knee to Jesus Christ as Lord, you can today. And I pray that you would turn to Christ in faith, that you would repent of your sinful rejection of Him and trust in Him alone. And in the end of this, it all, all comes down to trust. Friend, Jesus is worthy of your trust because He is the true, better Adam. He left the bliss, the comfort, the joy of loving and being perfectly loved to live a sorrowful life on earth. He took the pain and shame of a criminal's death and suffered the father's rejection so that you could be welcomed. So who could be more deserving of trust than Jesus? And the obedience of faith only works when it's rooted in a person and not in a command or a rule when a child doesn't understand her mother's commands, the mother's character plays a strong role in what happens next. A cruel, inconsistent mother is likely to meet resistance with the child, but an affectionate, nurturing mother inspires trust because she knows, this child knows that mom is on my side. And this is Jesus to us and more. He is worthy of our trust, because He's not a tyrant in heaven stomping His foot in anger. He's a loving friend, caring for you deeply, knowing the struggles you face intimately, because He faced them firsthand. And so my plea this morning to you is to trust in Christ alone. I need to conclude Friends, here's how you know if, if, if yourself or others are in tune with God, is what do you make of Jesus? If you do not desire to see Him honored, then you're at odds with the Father, and the reality of your faith in His Son is very much in doubt. See, the highest honor we will ever have as a child of God is to honor Jesus as Lord over all and to live as Christ has lived. In 1 Corinthians 11, one, Paul says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. In Ephesians 5, he says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. The Apostle John also exhorts us to follow Christ's example, walking as he walked, practicing righteousness as he is righteous, purifying ourselves as he is pure, and loving others as he is loved. So the acid test for all of our spiritual growth and formation is this. Are you becoming more like Jesus? Are the contours of your character being shaped by His image formed into His likeness? Do you increasingly hate sin and love righteousness as He does perfectly? Are you growing in humility and self-giving, which He's shown us? Are you making progress in loving and serving others as He's done Heavenly citizens share the mindset of Christ as a purposeful, sacrificial, selfless service for the eternal well-being of others. So, friends, continue to press into Him, seeking to empty ourselves for others and setting aside our rights so that we'll soften our hearts to live like Jesus. But there's really only one way to obey God when it hurts, and that's to think and meditate on the gospel. We we no longer search for approval from God, we live from his approval. And let me reiterate the good news to you, Christian, again this morning, in case it hasn't sunk in. The riches of Christ's obedience and life and death are what God sees when he looks at us. He he no longer sees us wallowing in our naked grabs for glory in our lies and our lusts and our fears. Christ's record of perfect obedience now frames God's vision of our existence. All of this because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. That's how the Father sees you, friend. What a Savior we have in Jesus, right? Man of sorrows who came and rescued us by the obedience of the Father. And so, I want to sing together, hallelujah, what a Savior and that we live in light of that truth. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you this morning, and we praise you for sending Jesus to rescue us and to redeem us. You have made a way for us to live with you forever, removing the stain of prideful sin that has covered us since the first Adam grabbed for glory. Father, you have been faithful to us and you sent Jesus to redeem us. Now, help us to live in light of that. Help us to live sacrificially for others and selfishly. Help us to deal with conflict that's in our lives and not push it aside or just ignore it or try to move past it. Help us to glory in the cross. Of what Christ has accomplished for us. And so we pray that as you send us from this place that we would be worshipers for you in humble service in the areas of life that you have for us. And we'll be sure to give you all the honor and glory, for we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.